Thanks for tuning in to the XL Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer. And I'm so happy you're here. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with tech-savvy lawyer Stephen Cavanaugh about remote hearings. Steve's the founding partner of Cavanaugh LLP, a paperless boutique litigation firm based in Ottawa. Certified by the Law Society of Ontario as a specialist in civil litigation, Steve's practice focuses on professional liability, insurance, and commercial litigation. Steve's also a long-standing member of the committee responsible for Ontario's rules of civil procedure and a member of the recently constituted Civil Working Group that's looking at ways to facilitate civil litigation conducted during this current pandemic and beyond. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, Steve. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Shelley. From what I understand, Canadian courts are still conducting most of their proceedings remotely and will continue to do so well into the future. Uh, I'm just wondering, as a busy civil litigation specialist, what has been your experience with uh, conducting remote hearings, virtual hearings? I've done a few hearings of one sort or another. I've done a, a disciplinary hearing for a, a professional body or before a professional body, uh, which otherwise I, I would have had to go down to Toronto for. But as it was, I was able to uh, sit in my comfortable chair at home and uh, <laughs> not make a move. Um, I've done... As it happens, a, a few mock uh, hearings of one sort or another, a, uh, a motion or a couple of motions actually, and a pretrial conference f for the purpose of training uh, some of the judges locally who are just getting into this. And I did one uh, fairly uh, small, uncontroversial actual motion. Uh, all, all of those are on uh, on Zoom. Mm -hmm. um, I have not yet myself done any examinations for discovery using Zoom, but I know people in my office have done lots of them and colleagues at other firms have done lots of them. So I've heard quite a bit about that from them. Mm -hmm. And I heard that that was a bit controversial at the outset. How are we going to do examinations for discovery yeah. on Zoom? Yeah. So perhaps we can start there. What, uh, what have you heard about what worked well and um, yeah, maybe what, are some of the challenges? Well, I think the uh, the bar divides somewhat into people who are comfortable with technology and people who would really rather not be in this position and would much prefer to go back to the way things uh, have historically been done. So there are the people who are not that comfortable with technology um, have a number of uh, issues, I think, with doing say, examinations for discovery by Zoom. So in order to, to do those effectively, you really need to have uh, at least two monitors so that you can see both the people and also the documents that will, uh, particularly in a civil case, uh, be coming fairly frequently and be shown to the witness and discussed among the lawyers. So it can become a big problem if you don't... Um, have facility in being able to see the documents on your screen or you have to switch back and forth between the uh, the view of the uh, witness and the view of the document. Hmm. Lots of people 
uh, well, lots of people, a number of lawyers uh, uh, still have a lot of their files in paper form. And of course, because this happened so suddenly, that is the uh, COVID lockdown happened so suddenly, offices emptied and firms that had their uh, their documents in paper form haven't really had an opportunity to convert those to electronic form that would you would need in order to do a, a Zoom uh, or a video conference examination. So that, I think, has been a bit of a challenge for those who were uh, kind of taken by surprise by this. Mm-hmm. And other than that, I think there's just the general learning curve that we've all had uh, using video conference software. People get the lighting wrong. They get the audio wrong. They, they forget to unmute their microphone and all sorts of things like that uh, that happen all the time and probably will continue to happen to some degree in the future. Mm-hmm. What's worked well? Well, I actually think that the that using um, video conference for the examination of witnesses, uh, there are a lot of positives about it. And I've actually, even before uh, COVID happened, I've heard judges remark that when they've had to, say, do uh, one or two witnesses at a trial, hear their evidence by video conference, they're surprised at how well it works and how in some ways it's superior to a live witness because they don't have to crane their necks looking sideways uh, <laughs> at the witness uh, who is typically in a witness box beside them. Instead, they have the witness, they're looking right at the witness's face, uh, usually you know, in a quite high quality uh, picture. So that I think works very well. Hmm. Um, you know, the audio is good as well. You you can record the audio readily, so uh, that works well. And the same thing with documents. Uh, if you are set up for it, instead of having to uh, observe a document that's being held up by someone in a witness box or even one that's being projected on a screen in a, a courtroom, if you're set up to do it uh, at home, you can be looking at the document from a very close-up, high-definition view on a separate monitor, Mm -hmm. and it's possible to annotate it, it's possible to move it around. Um, So I think there are a lot of pluses to doing it. Yeah, and I'm I'm thinking about um, some of the things that I've read about the positive aspects of remote hearings, and one was that uh, they tend to promote opportunities for settlement. I'm just wondering if you've noticed that yourself or if you've heard that anecdotally from any of your colleagues. I have talked to a number of the judges who have used Zoom for settlement conferences, and they've been very happy. In fact, I would say in most cases, uh, they prefer it to the the old way of doing it, that is in an in-person hearing, because with Zoom, uh, it has the uh, breakout rooms feature that allows the judge, without needing to have a physical breakout room, which are not easy to come by, and really they're, they're impossible to come by at the courthouse. So the judge has much more difficulty in a live, in-person uh, settlement conference in meeting privately with the parties or with the groups of parties, whereas in Zoom, that can be done in seconds, you can 
put together a group of say some of the defendants and their lawyers or all, each defendant and his or her lawyer could have their own breakout room and the judge can instantly move from one to the other room uh, so I, anecdotally from the judges at least and and from the lawyers i've spoken with uh, everyone seems to have had a fairly positive experience with settlement conferences um, being done in that form. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I imagine you could use those breakout rooms if you wanted to consult with your client um, privately, for example, during the hearing. Exactly. And in fact, that's the disciplinary hearing that I did. Uh, the panel was in Toronto. Um, the lawyer for the panel was in Toronto. The lawyer on the other side of the case for me was in Toronto. My client was in Montreal and I was in Ottawa. So we were, uh, there was no difficulty uh, putting me and my Montreal client into a breakout room where we were able to confer um, and then go back into the hearing and uh, and resume. So it, to my mind, it works extremely well. That That feature of it at least works extremely well. One of the big things that um, seems to be written about is sort of dealing with documents. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit about uh, that in context of examinations for discovery uh, and using the separate monitor. But um, are the courts saying that there's a certain format for documents that they prefer, a certain number? Um, like, has there been any sort of discussion or guidance on that? Because I can see how that could get pretty unwieldy. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right about that. Um, And in fact, um, at the civil working group uh, meeting, the last one of these that I was at, which is a a, a committee made up of judges and, uh, and lawyers across Ontario that is aimed at trying to come up with ways to facilitate uh, civil litigation being conducted in these circumstances. But it, it, it's uh, co-chaired by uh, Regional Senior Justice McLeod and Regional, Regional Senior Justice Firestone. And at the last meeting, Justice McLeod made the observation, which I think is quite accurate, that document management is going to be probably the biggest challenge, um, particularly going forward with trials. It's already a bit of a challenge when we're uh, when the menu is more limited with pretrial conferences and motions, but in those circumstances, you're not having to present documents to a witness and get the witness to speak about them, which you would have to do in a trial. Mm-hmm. So obviously, the first thing that has to be done is for the the documents to be in electronic form. And as I said earlier, not everybody is able to to uh, achieve that at the drop of a hat. Once you do have them in electronic form, then you you have to, as you were saying, decide on what is the form going to be. And I think the judges have expressed pretty clear preferences for, so far, for having the the documents uh, as PDFs, to have them bookmarked, to have them... um, I know one of our local judges has a couple of decisions in which she has really emphasized the importance of having uh, PDFs Bates numbered from beginning to end so that there's not 
for example, an affidavit that goes from page one to 20 and then exhibits going from pages one to three and pages one to six and so on. So instead you have just one set of numbers going from beginning to end. Uh, she considered that to be very important. And I know bookmarking is some, and linking to authorities on Canley are things that the judges have repeatedly mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, Sorry to interrupt. But, oh, I was just going to say that, but there are, uh, they, they do have some, uh, some suggested protocols that they've developed uh, to assist with that sort of thing. And where would we find those protocols? Well, one is on the uh, Superior Court website, and it's, it has protocols for things like um, naming of documents, um, and it, it deals to some extent with the creation of links within documents, links to authorities, and so forth. And as well, the um, as we were discussing before the podcast started, there is a, uh, a committee, a technology committee uh, made up of various organizations, uh, the Advocate Society, FOLA, I think the OBA, OTLA, and so forth, that came up with um, a set of best practices for not just for document management, but for virtual hearings generally. So it had suggestions about lighting and uh, audio and so forth, in addition to suggestions about, uh, about uh, documents. And I know that's available from the Advocate Society. It's probably also available from the various other uh, organizations that participated in its creation. Okay, good to know, because I think that would be really helpful. Um, yeah, and I'm surprised that that isn't sort of widely publicized. It probably needs to be more widely publicized because one of my partners uh, was at a, a meeting on Friday and was told by one of our local judges that they are finding that council are not adhering to these uh, best practices. And there seems to be some question whether they, whether lawyers are generally aware of the existence of the practices because one would assume that if they are aware, they would be following them. Mm -hmm. So they probably do need to be more widely publicized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I just want to go back to what you're saying about PDFs and creating links and things. Um, for those of us who aren't so tech savvy, are those hard things to do? Are there like, instructions somewhere like, on the <laughs> court's website? Um, yeah, I, think, I know. <laughs> I think both the Superior Court uh, uh, protocols and the uh, the technology groups protocols do go into that to some extent but really the easiest thing to do is to to create your document in word as most people would be doing anyway and then just save it as a uh, as a PDF and if you have have links in word so whether they're links to the internet or uh, or links to say a PDF attachment, and you've created those in Word, they will be carried over into the uh, into the PDF that you then file with the court. But it is there are different types of links that be that can be created. And having just gone through this in a uh, fairly extensive set of motion materials last week, it can be a, a bit of a laborious process, but. The, the judges really seem to like it. So I think it's, uh, it will, it will pay dividends at the end of the day. 
Mm-hmm. And these uh, bookmark PDFs, I just remember having to create one of those a few years ago and just pulling my hair out. I don't know if it's me or if it's just the, the process. It just seems so counterintuitive. Well, if you, do, if you create the document in Word uh, and you use Word's headings feature, then those headings become automatically become bookmarks in, uh, in Acrobat. So if you're having to create the bookmarks from scratch within the PDF document, that can be a, a bit of a challenge. Although there is actually software available that, um, which I, I've used, but only uh, to a very limited degree, that really uh, uh, supercharges the bookmark creation uh, process in PDF. So, for example, it will find, if you say that this formatting is something that should be bookmarked, it will find all of the passages in the document that has that formatting and will create a bookmark for each one. Mm-hmm. So, but that's just probably not 2% of the uh, population who are using software like that. So, anything mm-hmm. that uh, can be done to, to uh, shorten the process through creating bookmarks in Word, I think probably most people would want to do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm just wondering if you have any other practice tips that you could share, um, yeah, as everybody's entering into this new world. Well, as I said, I think document management is is so far the number one priority. Uh, uh, we haven't yet gotten to the stage of uh, hearings or at least on the civil side, I guess they have to some extent on the criminal side, they've had a few uh, in-person hearings and and even virtual hearings, but we haven't been doing trials yet on the civil side, either virtually or in person. So f- for now, at least when we're doing motions, potentially very, uh, very, um, important motions within the context of a case, whether it's a motion for summary judgment or whatever, uh, or in pretrial conferences, which would be the other big thing that uh, judges on the civil side would be doing. Those are quite document intensive. And so I think anyone who is practicing on the civil side really needs to get their document management under control. And that means getting the documents into electronic form in some way that that you, the lawyer, can readily make use of them, um, and then have the ability to um, access them and manipulate them without uh, too much difficulty at a hearing. I, I kind of liken it to someone who goes into an old-fashioned hearing with uh, where all of the documents are in banker's boxes and so <laughs> forth, and a lawyer who is organized will be able to put his or her hand right on the document they want because they've organized everything in advance. And then the, the, uh, the other bad example is the person who is just rummaging around through three or four bankers boxes, looking for that elusive, but key document. So it's, it's really taking that same philosophy of uh, organizing things and having them in a form where you're going to be able to, seamlessly go from one document to the other. That's what the judges will want to see. And I think that's what will score you points with the judges. 
Mm-hmm. And perhaps the, the judges aren't seeing the documents for the first time. Like I imagine, well, I, I hope there's something in place that um, would allow for the, um, you know, emailing or some type of electronic submission of the exhibits and whatever you're going to be relying on in advance. Yeah, that's part of what the, their protocols provide for. This was one of the real impediments to doing any civil litigation when the, uh, the COVID lockdown began, is that there was no way of getting documents to the judges, even assuming that they, were, they had no problem accessing them in uh, Acrobat and uh, viewing them on their monitors and so forth. But just getting them to the, to the judges was a big problem mm-hmm. because very often the the documents would be too large to be sent by email the judges didn't want to be receiving emails directly from lawyers or litigants anyway and the court staff was not set up uh, in the early days to be acting as go-betweens between counsel and the judges to receive documents for a case and then uh, get them to the judges things have improved a great deal since then and so now uh, there is typically something like Dropbox or some other uh, portal, OneDrive or Acrobat has one too, where all of the documents will be deposited in that location and anyone who is involved with the case, whether it be the judge or the opposing lawyers, will be able to access them and download them from there to their computer without having to worry about how many megabits uh, is the document? Is it going to be something that can make the transition through to my computer? Mm-hmm. So that huge. has gotten yeah. a lot be- a lot better, even in the short time that we've been doing this. And I think that's the way it's going to continue. The documents will be deposited, and then they'll be picked up from there by the judge and the other lawyers. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes really good sense. The big concerns that I have, I haven't encountered these myself, but I have heard um in examinations for discovery uh you could run into a situation where the witness has without your knowledge has someone else in the room with him or her who is perhaps coaching the witness there's one local lawyer who didn't tell me this but told one of my partners that she had seen a reflection of the uh, witness's husband in the same room he wasn't supposed to be there so that is one uh, i think concern probably the the number one concern that i've ha- had or have, have heard rather from people who have expressed concerns about zoom and by the same token uh, somewhat related is um this whole issue of open courts and even the judges i've spoken with have had this concern how are we going to have courts that are open to the public um, and yet at the same time have control over such things as excluding witnesses during a, uh, a hearing. So we want want to be able to allow some people in, mm-hmm. but not everyone in. How are we going to make sure that a, uh, that a witness has actually left the, uh, the hearing and isn't going to have their evidence uh, contaminated? Mm-hmm. I don't wow. really have a, an easy answer to that yet. That's that's a, a concern that I've heard expressed, and probably it won't really be addressed until we start doing uh, virtual trials, which should be in a couple of months. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if the um, protocols we were talking about or those best practices um, 
address that? Well, I, uh, I think they do address it to, to some extent, and the, but the only thing I've heard so far is uh, on discoveries, for example, that it has become quite standard to ask the witness to confirm that uh, he or she is alone, uh, that he or she is not uh, in communication with anyone else by email, for example. Um, and that takes you some distance. I don't think most people are, are going to break that, that rule once they're aware of it, but there's only so much you can do to, to assure that that's, that's actually happened. So the, the potential for abuse is probably still going to be there, but even with live uh, examinations, there was some potential for communication between a witness and either his or her lawyer that wasn't supposed to take place or with some other party that wasn't or some other person that wasn't supposed to take place. So none of these systems is completely bulletproof. Uh, and it's just a matter in the case of video conferencing of identifying what are the, uh, the frailties and trying to address those as best we can. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if there are aspects of the litigation process that may not lend themselves uh, to video conferencing or some other type of remote format. I think it would be a real challenge to have a virtual uh, trial with a jury. Uh, it should be possible to do a virtual trial, non-jury trial, because we've been doing trials in which some of the witnesses have been testifying by a video conference for a long time. So this mm-hmm. is just a one step further. But a jury trial is, is a whole other thing. And uh, I think that will become a real challenge going forward. And perhaps for that reason, the Attorney General is looking at the possibility of abolishing uh, jury trials in the civil context. Wow. Ooh. I can imagine that being met with a fair bit of resistance from certain members of the practicing yes, bar. Yes, <laughs> certainly uh, there were submissions made um, a few weeks back by various organizations. And of course, some are very much in favor of it and others are very much against it. So I have not heard that any decision has been reached, but it would be a, a pretty big decision. But still, if you're, if you're not going to, uh, if you're going to allow civil juries to continue, um, there's going to have to be some way of having civil jury trials sometime without you know, waiting for three, four, five, six years uh, until every possible risk has been eliminated. So I'm not mm-hmm. sure what's going to happen on that front. Yeah, well, we're watching that pretty uh, pretty closely. I'm wondering if there are other uh, things that the uh, courts or judges that you've been working with on the two committees that you're involved in have been thinking about in terms of change uh, to the way things are, are operating in the courts. Um, well, I'm on the civil working group, which I mentioned earlier, that is... Uh, is, has only been struck since COVID, and it's really aimed at trying to come up with uh, ways to uh, to allow civil litigation to continue with in, in Ontario with as few um, impediments as possible. So that group looked at the rules of civil procedure and came up with a package of what I think is fairly uncontroversial uh, reforms in that they were things that really uh, need to be 
changed in the rules, such as, for example, to take a, an obvious example, the rules as they stand uh, contemplate the filing of transcripts in paper form. So, of course, nobody's filing any, anything at all in paper form anymore, so the rules need to be changed to allow for filing of electronic documents. So there were a lot of changes that this group, the Civil Working Group, um, came up with that were aimed at that sort of thing. Uh, rule 1.08, for example, deals with video conference and teleconference, but it was drafted long before any of what's going on now uh, started. So some changes were made to that to uh, uh, broaden the court's powers to make sure that judges are not going to be stuck not able to move a case forward just because someone is unwilling to uh, to make use of video conference or even teleconference. So things of that nature um, were in this package of reforms that was then sent over to the rules committee about, I think about two weeks ago. I'm also on the rules committee, so I, I saw both the, uh, <laughs> the front end and the back end of that. And... Uh, Somewhat to my surprise, it, it went right through the Rules Committee with no challenge at all. Um, normally, there's at least more discussion than took place there, but it was uh, had already been pretty thoroughly worked over by the Civil uh, Working Group. So the Rules Committee sent it off to the legislative drafts persons to come up with the actual formal uh, changes to the language of the rules, and then it's going to go back to the Civil uh, rules committee and unless something goes wrong unless there's some problem with the wording then that should ha happen those changes should be made fairly quickly but I anticipate there's going to be probably larger scale changes coming down the road that they're not that urgent yet but if we're talking about uh, much greater uptake or use of virtual hearings it becomes, I think, less and less important what uh, county or what uh, judicial district, to, to use the old language, what re regional municipality a particular proceeding is taking place in. So why should there be any requirement that uh, a lawyer in Timmins can't argue a case in Ottawa by video conference? Should that lawyer actually have to travel to Ottawa to uh, to make argument and have uh, his or her client pay for that? Hmm. So I think those sorts of things, now that virtual hearings have become so much a part of our system in such a short time, I think there are going to be broader-based reforms that we will likely see uh, down the road. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, once the door is open, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. I'm just wondering if there are any sort of final points that you'd like to address, things that maybe we didn't touch on that uh, you think would be useful to share with listeners? Um, well, uh, the Chief Justice has, uh, Justice Morowitz has said that we're not going back to the old way of doing things. So I, I know some of my colleagues are almost in tears over that. Um, I'm not, uh, I think this should have been done long ago. Um, so I, I think anyone who has been reluctant to say, make the leap into uh, a paperless office, um, they should 
get over those uh, those concerns now and uh, resign themselves to the fact that that's going to be the brave new world in which we're operating. It remains to be seen, I think, uh, what effect this is going to have on law firms themselves going forward. Um, I heard a statistic, I don't know, about a, a month or so ago about a national firm that uh, they did a, an internal survey to see how many of their lawyers wanted to go back to the office at the end of all of this, and the number was very low. Mm. So uh, we may be seeing not only a sea change in how the courts operate, but a sea change also uh, in how law offices and, and uh, those sorts of businesses operate in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll be so interesting to see what happens because I've I've heard that uh, that that same information across the board that people are yeah. you know generally enjoying working from home for the most part you know yeah uh, yeah, yeah very interesting uh, and it's good for the clients too because the clients are not paying for lawyers to travel from uh, as I've done myself uh, traveling from Ottawa to Toronto for a fifteen minute uh, hearing and then traveling back. Mm-hmm. which never made any sense but that sort of thing will never happen again and uh, clients will be the will be the beneficiaries of that mhm mhm yeah well i'm sure we're going to see um you know more positive things coming out of this as well and that's my hope because i'm like you i'm an optimist and i <laughs> i, I want to focus on the positives but yeah. Uh, yeah so steve thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us and for your helpful practice tips um yeah and i invite people to um explore the idea of a paperless office because you've had one for such a long time when did you introduce that Oh, it's it was quite a while ago. I think it would might have been as long ago as fifteen years, mm-hmm. and, uh, at a time when I when I was first trying to do it, I went around to um, what were then uh, uh, photocopying uh, shops, businesses, to try to see if they could scan documents. And I think I mentioned this to you when we spoke before the podcast mm-hmm. that uh, one of them, in order to try to get the business said, well, we'll scan one of your files and you can see how it goes. And so they scanned a, a closed file and proudly gave it to me as one gigantic thousand page uh, PDF with no bookmarks, no nothing. <laughs> so that was uh, in the early days, but now uh, things are a lot more sophisticated and uh, um, well, I'm just glad that we were we had all of that in place before this crisis hit. For sure, and I'm sure that people who are thinking of going paperless or at least introducing some uh, less paper in their office are happy there were trailblazers like you, <laughs> so they don't have to go through that. Yeah, yeah. Well, wonderful talking to you, Steve. Thank you again. And My pleasure, Shelley. Thanks for joining me today on the XL Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for great topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at xllegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L.com.